Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're looking tonight at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul here is coming to the end of a particularly difficult section of the book. And uh, as we'll see, he comes to this uh, conclusions of sorts. Of course, it's not the end of the book of Romans. We're going to shift to a new section of Romans next, uh, next Sunday. But, but we can look at this as sort of a conclusion to a certain, uh, the first, let's say the first 11 chapters of Romans. And, um, and these are stunning words. Uh, the place that Paul's work of teaching and writing to the Roman believers leads to this place of, of worship, an outburst of praise. And uh, so let's, let's take our, our minds and our hearts to really consider these words and ask for the Lord's help uh, to apply, apply them to our own hearts and our own lives. Let's hear now from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given Him a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I pray that as we see this worship on the lips of our, our friend Paul, I pray that you would brand this onto our hearts. Not the words, but the, the worship that is behind these words. Help us to see you and consider you rightly. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us to the place where we truly belong. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, going through the book of Romans on Sunday nights has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's a big book. It's, for many of you, uh, we've talked over the last few months about how this is your, your favorite book in all of the Bible. I remember my grandmother would talk about Every time I would see her, she would quote, quote uh, Romans 8 uh, the second half of Romans 8 to me every time I saw her. Uh, and, and at her uh, funeral, when, after she died, the, the one thing she asked for was for me to read Romans 8. And, and I know many of you have a similar sort of love for the book of Romans, but I will say, as fun as it is to preach through the book of Romans, uh, Pastor Dean can tell you, and Pastor Barkley, and, and, and Will will soon be able to tell you, uh, he probably can already, that there are some difficulties to it. There are certain places and certain verses and passages that, that are just tough passages to interpret and understand. And as a preacher, you may not know this, but you have to make decisions. You have to make decisions and say, this is how I'm going to preach this text or this passage. And I know that there are uh, good men who've written good commentaries who disagree. And uh, it's a humbling process. Uh, because the book of Romans brings with it these, these heavy, important, and deep truths. Uh, 
people have talked about this as sort of the, the magnum opus of Paul. And again, people's favorite letter in the book of Romans. We have so much to learn and there are so many difficult passages. I, I appreciate what Pastor Dean said last week looking at one of these difficult passages where you might have good reformed men who disagree on how to interpret. I, I don't know if you remember him saying this in the sermon. He said, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm not really worried if I'm wrong here. Because God is a God of mercy. And God is a God of mercy. And I, I appreciate him saying that because I feel the same way and I felt the same way. I might be wrong here. But I'm not too worried because God is a God of mercy. Of course, we seek to be as right as we possibly can. Seek to know what exactly this verse, this passage is trying to teach us. We work hard to preach and to, to understand these words. But even Peter, the Apostle Peter, will say later on in the New Testament, even Paul's sometimes hard to understand, guys. I get it. He can be a little bit, little bit difficult. And so when you look at the book of Romans and you see you know, these, these, these difficult passages and these dis- difficult verses, and you kind of wonder, well, well, what is going on? It could mean this, it could mean that, it could take us these different ways. We actually see Paul himself is, is wrestling with, with the, the Spirit-inspired truths that are being written and laid out before God's people, before the church. And, and you can see that his concern for you, as Dean's concern for us in the pulpit here, isn't necessarily that you get every doctrine right. I I don't want you to say, Ben doesn't care about my doctrine. Of course I do. But you you see with Paul here in these verses... His doctrine, his, his wrestling with these, these truths of the, of the Lord lead him to a place of absolute worship. And what I, I want, and I don't know that I'm able to do, we, we need the Spirit. We always need the Spirit on Sundays, every day. But, but when we worship God through the preaching, do you know you're worshiping God now listening to me preach? My prayer is that tonight you will be worshiping God because of who He is and what He has done. You know, the Apostle Paul, again, we have all these difficult and deep and wonderful, uh, intricate doctrines throughout chapters 1 through 11. But if you could sum up the Christian faith in one word, you might, you might come up with different words that you might use, but one that I think would be appropriate is the word grace. Grace. Paul never gets tired. As much as he goes through teaching about justification, we've just seen in, in chapter 11 talking about uh, the role, where is Israel in all of this, and, and the covenants, and has God turned away, you know, what's going on here? Yet Paul never gets tired of reminding us throughout the book of Romans of the the centrality of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I'll just give you a couple of examples. In Romans 3.24, what does he say? He says, and we are justified by His grace. And then in chapter 11, this, this chapter that we're finishing up, 
uh, tonight, but really Pastor Dean kind of took us to the, the, the heights of it last week of the, 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 the theology of where does Israel stand here. He says in Romans 11 verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And I think there's a sense in which coming to these verses that we read here that, that Paul has been meditating upon the grace of God and the sheer weight of the love of God, that God would love any of us, that God would love me. It overwhelms Paul. And he bursts out in these verses in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And you know, what we have in these verses is nothing less then Paul, the apostles, his personal response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ that captured his heart, his mind, and made him a new man in the Lord Jesus. I mean, you know his story, or many of you do. Years before, he was on the road to Damascus. People called him Saul then. He was persecuting the church. And Jesus appears to him. And changes his life forever. He takes out Paul's heart of stone. And gives him a new heart of life. He makes him a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. He saves this wretched sinner and enemy of Christ. And Paul considers the sheer wonder and magnificent of what God has done for sinners who deserve judgment and hell. And he knows all about that. He will say in another letter that he's chief among sinners. He says, God would love even me. He would rescue a man like me, a wretch that I am. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. When the grace of God in Jesus Christ, when it pierces your life, it's going to produce a certain kind of response. Wherever grace breaks into someone's life, we're going to see in these verses uh, three responses that will mark the believer's life. It will. Every life that is tasted of the, the saving love of Jesus Christ will respond in these three ways. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. And the first response is, is a response of adoration. Adoration. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? The assumption is, not I. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here the Apostle Paul is showing this humble adoration of God as he thinks upon the unfathomable wonder of God's grace. Of God's saving work in his life and in the life of of the church. There's a sense in which Paul here is, is almost speechless. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. What can I say? 
Paul says here that these riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, they're all beyond him. Oh, the depth. And what he means is, oh, the unfathomable depth. I I cannot measure the depth of the, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I cannot do it. How unsearchable are his judgments. Inscrutable are his ways. Here's a man who's confessing, I am out of my depth. I am, I, God has plunged Paul in the deep end. And he cannot comprehend. He cannot fathom. It's over his head and his feet can't touch the bottom of God. And how God has acted towards him and towards his church in Jesus Christ. Here we have a moment where Paul is acknowledging he doesn't have all the answers. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Paul, the the great missionary in church history, the one who corrects and rebukes Peter, the one who has written most of the New Testament letters to us, He's writing to churches, correcting them and guiding them through, through difficult trials and hardships. And he is teaching them the ways of God and the life of godliness. You know, if we put all of our heads together, and many of you here are much smarter than I am, we still probably could not count the number of books or dissertations written on the theology of Paul over the last 2,000 years. I've even read secular historians argue that the Apostle Paul fundamentally shaped and molded the ethics and worldview of the Western world and that he has a greater influence on our life today than any other person in history. Non-Christian historians making this case. So if there's an authority we want to go to and say, what should I think about God here? Paul is the guy. And what does he say? Oh, the depth. I'm out of my depth. I I don't know what to say. You see, grace has brought this man, Paul, face to face with the incomprehensible God whose ways are inscrutable. Paul doesn't have answers, but he does have questions. And his questions here drive home the further the greatness and the mysteries of the ways of God. Look at verse 34 and 35. There's three questions here. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In verse 34, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 40. In the verse 35, he's, he's quoting Job chapter 41. I think these quotations are significant for us. In Isaiah 40, we have the prophet of God. He's, he's wrestling with the sovereignty of God in light of the fact of, of Israel's exile. Here, uh, Isaiah's looking and the people of God have been kicked out of their home. These are God's people. These are the people to whom belong the covenants, God's promises and cares. We've been seeing in Exodus how God has saved this people and made this people for his own glory. And now they're in exile and, 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 and Isaiah is struggling with this and 
he comes to a point in chapter 40 where Isaiah, the prophet, says, and he confesses, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? He's saying, God does not need your advice. He does not need Isaiah's advice or Paul's opinion before making his, his decisions. God is not obligated to explain himself to us. He is God. And we are not. And when we pursue that and explore those questions, the more we do that, we're going to be left in the same place as Isaiah and Paul. I'm out of my depth. I'm over I'm in over my head. And then in verse 35 consider consider Job. Job the righteous man whom whom God he lo- God loves him. And he's righteous before God and and then everything everything is taken away from him. His wealth, his his home, his family, His health, everything is is taken away right before his eyes. And and here's a man who loves God and he's left there and he's bruised and he's all but broken. And then in Job 40 we see this. Who has given to God that God should repay him? Maybe you could say it this way. Who am I that God's obligated to me? That's not obligated to me. There's a lot that could be unpacked here. We only have so much time. But I I want to make a point that you may not recognize here. There's a key point here that this unsearchableness, this out-of-depthness that God's people keep coming into when they come before the Lord... The unsearchableness of God's judgments, the inscrutability of God's ways, this unsearchableness, this inscrutability, it it refers not to what God has hidden. It's interesting, it's not referring to what God has hidden from us, but rather to what God has revealed to us. This is referring, Job and Isaiah and and Paul are not saying, God, you've, you've hidden things from me. They're saying, no, you've, you've revealed yourself to me. And I'm overwhelmed. And I'm overwhelmed. It is the revelation of God that leaves Paul crying out, oh, the depth. It is God opening up to us who he is and how he works and what he has done in Jesus Christ that leaves the apostles stunned. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are your ways, God. Paul has just gotten done surveying how God is dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles throughout the ages. And he he asks the question, who knows the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Yes, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. God's not revealed everything about himself to us. But he has revealed some things. And the things that he has revealed, those things belong to us. They are not secret things. They are for us to study and to to read and to believe and to grow in understanding. But it is the things that are not secret that leads Paul to being out of his depth. 
Isn't that amazing? Paul is surveying the wondrous gospel. God who becomes man and bearing the sin of the world. God sovereignly choosing to save according to his own grace and his purposes. Paul looks at the revelation of God and says, Brothers, I am out of my depth here. When is the last time you had such a sense of wonder of the incomprehensibility of God? To see, you know, I I don't know everything. I really don't. And actually, the, the more you grow in Christ... Yes, you learn more of him, but you also have this sense in which there's more and more I I don't know. I I begin to realize how little I truly do know. We know in part, yes, we, we see through a glass darkly. We know enough by the grace of God, but how much do I not know? How much more is there to learn? To draw near to you, God. To be in your presence will never exhaust you. How often do you confess your ignorance before the holy, eternal, triune God? Think any life that's been captured by the grace of Jesus Christ has to on some level and at some point come to a place where they're brought to a Humble adoration of God. But not only do we have a humble adoration, but we also see, secondly, an affirmation. An affirmation. Look at verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. This is a confession of affirmation. What is Paul affirming here? Well, the first is this. Paul wants us to know that God is the only source of salvation. He's the only source of salvation. Everything that you have, it comes from God. It comes from Him, through Him, and to Him. To Him alone are all things. It is God who has given you your Savior, Jesus Christ. It is God who grants you repentance and faith. It is God who enables you to trust and receive Christ. It is God who sends you His Holy Spirit to enable you to cry out, Abba, Father, and to live your life for Christ. And it is God who will bring you to your final glorification. It is when we learn to recognize that all the blessings that we have come from God, it is then that we are able to really begin to worship Him truly, purely, with focus in our hearts. We have a hard time with that, I think, because all of us likely have a little bit of Arminianism in our hearts too. Don't we? I mean, don't I get some of the praise, God? Didn't I do something here? Haven't I done a little bit to earn these blessings that you've given to me? Paul says, no. Everything you have 
all the goodness from God, it, it comes from God. It comes from God. If you have anything, it is because of Him. It is because of God that you are in Jesus Christ and every blessing that you enjoy in union with Christ, that's from God. So Paul affirms that all that we have comes from God. And secondly, he affirms that that everything is not only from God, but it is through Him. Through Him are all things. For from Him, in verse 36, and through Him. We are reminded here that every blessing we enjoy comes from God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Salvation comes sovereignly, but it also comes incarnationally and sacrificially by the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His bloody work on the cross. And through Him. Brothers and sisters, you must never forget what it cost God to bring salvation to you. It cost Him His own Son. Through Him, are all things through the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again, Jesus Christ. It is through Him we have our salvation. We can never separate the blessings of Christ from the person of Christ because Christ is the blessing. It is through Him. Through Him. We see thirdly, and it is to Him, are all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. We've talked about this in a sermon recently, I think at the beginning of Romans 11 actually, that the goal and purpose of everything, of everything you do, is is God. All things find their significance in God. The God from whom all blessings flow and through him everything that belong all the blessings come to us it is god, the god to whom all things find their significance you know to, to put it on everyday level I mean, do you know what you are for why do you exist what do you do why do you do it some of you are starting a new semester in school and Others maybe are starting new jobs and, or some of you are still grinding away in the same office and you might stop and wonder, what is this for? What am I for? Who you are, what you do, is for Christ. All things are for Christ. You are saved For Christ, to Christ you owe your existence, and to Him are all things. I'm sure this quote's been quoted a million times from this pulpit, but when it's good, it's good. And I think Augustine was was trying to get at this, or he was getting at this, when he said, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. He's putting his finger on the reality that your heart, your life, your existence is is for God. 
What is the purpose of God? Well, it's not ultimately that you and I be saved. Though we might like to think of it. God, you exist so you could save me. Thank you very much. Rather, the purpose of God is that God may be all in all. The ultimate end of your salvation in Jesus Christ is that God may be all in all. You see, one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be a resurrection. There will be. Christ will return and there will be no more sin and everyone will be who is in Christ will be together without sin with, with, with bodies that are not deteriorating or broken and, and we will with one voice be giving praise to God through Jesus Christ. That's our destiny. That, that's what all of this is for. For to Him are all things. This is adoration. This is a hymn of affirmation. Thirdly, we see in the end of verse 36 a prayerful exaltation. The end of verse 36, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that God will do to you, he does this for everyone who is saved in Christ, is he implants in your heart a new longing. And that longing is to give God glory. That is the longing of the heart of the believer. We've seen this already. Is that the longing of your heart tonight? If not, you should go home tonight and ask yourself the question, am, am I really in Christ? Do I, do I long for God to receive glory? Now yes, there are times when that longing comes under a, a shadow and you feel far from God's presence. We've already seen in Romans 8, nothing can t- separate you from the love of God. That, that kind of indicates that there are things that will try to separate you from the love of God. You may feel overwhelmed by difficulty and darkness, but but even in those times, isn't it true that if you were asked, what do you want most in this life? I want my Savior to be glorified. You see, Paul's prayer here, his doxology here is not a conclusion Merely a conclusion of an intellectual mind. Of course, he is intellectual. But this is not the, the final piece of, of a man who's just sat down with a bunch of premises and come up with a logical conclusion and making applications. As important as those things are, what we see in verses 33 through 36 is the longing of a soul who has been rescued from eternal damnation has been united to Jesus Christ. What do you long for? And Paul is saying, to him alone be glory forever. Brothers, sisters, are you able to say this? Even in your times of weakness, your deep sense of need, to him be glory. The intellectual, intellectual grasp of the doctrines of 
of Christ, they're, they're important. I don't want you to go away here and say, Pastor Ben told me I don't need to study theology anymore. But I want you to know that even greater than that, because that is important, to know more of God. Because you always can know more of God. But even greater than that is the inward heart experience of the reality of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Have you known the Savior, Jesus Christ? Have you known him? Do you know him? Oh, the depth. This first little word in the doxology, oh, it's funny, you look at it in the Greek, it's, it looks exactly the same, just oh. Sometimes you come to see the things of God. You see the, the grace of God, you begin to understand the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. And it, it's just nothing more to say, is there? Other than to gasp. Oh. To be brought to a place of utter speechlessness. And all you can say is, oh, the depth, and worship him. Let's pray. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see Christ clearly. I do pray that you would help us to be mindful, to grow in our intelligence, intellect, and to know the doctrines of of grace, the doctrines of Scripture well. Help us to defend true theology, true Christianity, But I pray also, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. That we would be able to say with Paul, oh, the depth. That for all of our days, that we would have hearts of worship and praise. That the great longing of our heart would be you and your glory. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.